0: Hi, how are you getting on? Are you ready for another episode? It's time to sit back, relax, and be inspired by Trials of a Sofa Surfer. for another episode of Trials of a Sofa Surfer. My name is Brian Reid, and today we have the pleasure of having a conversation with Gordon Cowper. Now, I've known Gordon a number of years, but uh, he managed to surprise me with uh, a couple of the stories that he shared, Uh, none more so than the time he was absent without leave in North America. That's all I'll say. We also have a discussion, uh, a fun discussion, about his favourite football team, Dundee United. We go back into the past, uh, chat about some of their most famous results and uh, their famous players. Uh, And then we talk about the current team and uh, their attempt to try and get back into Scotland's top division. But mostly the conversation is about his life and his battle with alcohol addiction. His homelessness, his his travels across the UK, and he makes some very good points about what it means to be an alcoholic, and how life as an alcoholic isn't just about stopping drinking and focusing on that, it's about what you replace it with, and it's about building a life. And he credits the Arch for helping him to build a life, for which we are grateful. So sit back, grab a coffee, plug it into the car, wherever you listen to your podcast, and enjoy Gordon Cowper for Trials of a Sofa Surfer. So Dundee United, how do you think they're going tonight? I think they will get at least a draw, which will put them through at the final. And who do you think it will be, St, St Mirren
1: or Hamilton? I think I'd prefer St Mirren because we've already beat them in the Scottish Cup this season at St Mirren. So that's so kind to be a good open, open mm. for that sort of game. Hamilton beat us last year, so.
0: Right, so. The year
1: before last, actually. Yeah. You got no out in the semis last year.
0: Well, I'm obviously living in Paisley like i so I'd rather St Mirren stayed up. So. But I'd like to see Dundee United back, <laughs> I must admit. So, how long have you been supporting Dundee United? <laughs> Well, I
1: I started supporting Dundee United in 1967 after a brief excursion in supporting Celtic because they were in the European Cup final. I think many people did then, though, didn't they? I think they probably did. My dad wasn't happy at all because he was a United (laughs) fan, but I've supported United ever since.
0: So, so uh, obviously you grew grew up in Dundee, yeah. So from Dundee,
1: yeah. Born in Dundee, lived there till I was seven, and then moved to Glenrothes. Glenrothes. Fife,
0: where I lived most, most of my childhood up to school age. And you've been a United fan ever since. I have been, yes. Not a Dundee fan then?
1: Uh, no, no, I don't like Dundee very much at all. Even though the first, <laughs> the first game of football I ever went to was actually Dundee versus Celtic. And the player that impressed me most was Jimmy Johnson. He uh, did like amazing geez. things with the ball yeah. that I couldn't dream about doing. You know, yeah, it was yeah. like it was like Messi these days. You know, right. it's like yeah. he could, this guy can do anything. You know, it's great. But I never ever stuck with either of those two. <laughs> <laughs> it was my uncle Kenny that took me to that game. He was a Dundee fan.
0: Brilliant, poor man. So tangerine ever since. Yes. And uh, so so he grew up in Dundee. And moved to Glenrothes, uh-huh. as you said. So what was what was school like?
1: Uh, I actually quite liked school. It was good. Uh, my early days at primary school, in, when I was in Glenrothes, I struggled a bit. I, they actually thought about sending me to a special school when I was about eight or nine. And they told me this we're thinking about sending you a special school because you're just no good my writing and spelling especially were absolutely awful but as it turned out I just knuckled down because I'd been told that and I actually got sent to high school a year early
0: <laughs> so so you really knuckled yeah, down nice, so yeah so I really
1: knuckled down you know I, I, was a, I was a kid the oldest people in the class were getting sent up to high school year, early but they wouldn't have sent me had I not got up to the standard that I needed for that you know so that was actually quite quite a good thing. My childhood was good, mostly, but there was a couple of things that were awful about my childhood. I was abused as a child by a friend of the family. That wasn't good, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's haunted me for my whole life, basically. I can say it, I've dealt with it now though, because the counseling I had a couple of years ago helped a great deal with that, because it showed me that my childhood wasn't all bad because every time I was looking back I was looking back and thinking god that was terrible but the counsellor actually made me make a, a little she didn't make me she invited me to make a list of all the good things and all the bad things mm-hmm. in my childhood and the good things far outweighed the bad things when we looked at this list at the end and I was surprised and relieved in a lot of ways that I had good memories to look back on from my childhood, like playing football with all my friends and cricket and golf. You know, I was our whole life, outdoor sports, yeah. you know, playing in the woods, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so that was fine up to the age of about 14, 15, when I had my first drink. But I thought it's just typical stuff because all my mates were doing it. Like, yeah. it was like a bottle of Scots, a couple of cans of Newcastle Brown, and I was drunk. And drunk, being drunk was great. That's that that was how I felt about it you alcohol. enjoyed it that day oh yeah it was great yeah
0: did uh, did you uh, alcohol fascinates me be, uh, because it was only well i was gonna say only but yeah you but know, it was only when i was i became an adult speaking to people who uh you know would drink a lot uh i i was i started drinking when I was sixteen and uh, you know go to meet my friends Aye. For a few beers etc And it wasn't until many years later That people told me they went out deliberately To get drunk Aye. Now, I never did that I never, I never consciously thought I'm going to go and get You know you know, Really drunk tonight um, But then people would tell me Well, well, well that's, that was normal for me Sort, sort of thing And uh, so yeah So it's kind of fascinating when I talk to people who say Went out to get deliberately drunk
1: Aye you're making me smile because I, I can't understand it for the opposite yeah, point yeah, of view. Yeah. Like every time I've ever had a drink, I've wanted to be drunk. You know that's always been the objective. Yeah. Uh, I can't understand why anyone would go to a pub and have a pint of lager and go yeah. home. I just I, I, I don't, I don't from, see the the point in it at all. I
0: know coming from Scotland, uh, that's I'm, I'm the the odd one out. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, not, I, I, not so much these days. I don't think. I think there's there's far more people, especially young people nowadays, who are very moderate in their in their drinking. I've, because I'm not drinking anymore, I notice things like that. Maybe it was always yeah, like that, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And I just didn't notice because I was always there to get yeah, drunk. Yeah.
0: So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But, you know, so kind of, so you you would go out with your friends, Aye, Nikki New, New Brown, Aye, the good stuff, yeah. And,
1: um, like, I did that up to about age of 16 when I left school. Uh, got my O-levels, so did quite well at that, 7 O-levels. All the passes. Super. I up a wee bit. <laughs> so that got me into the Royal Navy, like which I ran away to join. Uh, wow. like, <laughs> I say I ran away. I hitchhiked to Dundee and went to the office, and then they sent forms out to my parents, and they had to sign it. My parents surprisingly enough, signed it instantly. Wow. said, yeah. yeah. that be him going. <laughs> Don't know what <where> that <laughs> right, says. <laughs> right. Uh, so I was in the Navy for just under three years. In the first two years, it was great. Like I was on a shore base, mainly in Portsmouth and Weymouth. Weymouth mainly because like, I was there for about 18, 19 months. And I loved it there. You know, it was a different life in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to drink in pubs. Scotland wouldn't know so much, because uh, I, I, I looked very young at that time. I've seen photographs of me at that time, and I don't know how I ever got served anyway. Obviously, it's because I was big with the big stokers and all that. They'd, <laughs> know, they'd say, "Yeah, he's with us. He's fine." You know, get you got away with murder in those days. That you know, in the seventies, you know, the rules weren't the same then. Yeah. <laughs> People would drink and drive, and nobody would turn yeah, back yeah. here. You know? uh, so. As I say, I enjoyed the first couple of years and then I went on the ship and absolutely detested it. The, the whole being enclosed inside this metal box thing wasn't for me at all. But the ship, eventually we got to Fort Lauderdale in Florida and I went out drinking and sitting with two of my mates, I remember tearing up my ID card at the bar and saying, I'm never going back. Oh. Uh, they were shocked. <laughs> Uh, but that's what I did. I stayed in a, I stayed in Fort Lauderdale for three four months, working in a bar. When I was too young, to even drinking the bar.
0: So effectively absent without leave.
1: Yes, and in a foreign country that I shouldn't have been in. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't care. While well, I had a bit of money and I was drinking every night, obviously in the bar, you'd get tips. People would buy you drinks. Yeah, so yeah, it was like pl- pleasurable. But after about three four months, I, I got scared and. Didn't know what I was going to do next. I was scared of getting caught. That's always been a big fear in my life, like the fear of being caught doing something. So I gave myself up to the police and said, I shouldn't be here. I jumped ship for a Royal Navy ship like a few months ago, and they put me in a cell for a wee while and then sent me off to Atlanta in Georgia. Where I was put in a cell in a air force or naval base type place. I didn't even know which with which it was. Like I was all I saw it was the cell. <laughs> they didn't really know what to do with me either. And eventually they found out a British ship was coming in the Hermes, big aircraft carrier. So they got in touch with them and they took me on board and I was put in a cell on the ship, taken back to Plymouth.
0: How long were we in the Hermes, in, in a cell? <laughs>
1: I can't really remember. It was probably about three weeks or something like that. Right. It, was, it wasn't a long, long time ago, anyway. It was like a couple of weeks, three weeks. No, I'm
0: just thinking so, it's fortunate maybe it, yeah, was, com- it was coming back to Britain. I think, I think, to, I think if Britain. they
1: hadn't been going back to Britain oh. at that time, they probably would have made other arrangements. Right, and right. Sent me home in a plane or whatever. Right. But I ended up in Plymouth in a cell there for a wee while and they just kicked me out, discharged shore. Uh, Basically, I think that means you're not fit to be yeah. a service person. Uh, I didn't think of it, think about it as a mental health problem at the time, but looking back on it, it probably was. Right. Because you don't a normal thinking person doesn't go out and get drunk and tear up their life basically, and that's what I was doing. I yeah, was tearing yeah, up my yeah. whole life and walking away from yeah. it, and that was to become a pattern throughout the rest of my life. I've done it so many times. Uh, so, I'll, as I say, I was out of the Navy, I was back at home in Glenrothes. My parents had moved to a smaller house, so I was on the couch basically. And within a couple of weeks, I moved out, stayed with a mate. And it was party time, you know, I was out drinking every night, I had a decent jobs, making a bit of money. That didn't last very long because Obviously, being in someone else's house, mm-hmm. you didn't feel welcome. After a while, it's like that. You know, it's, you, you're you sleeping on somebody else's couch and
0: you just well, don't know what's Effectively, going on. you'd be homeless. You,
1: yeah, I I never looked at it as being homeless at the time, but yeah, I was homeless at that time. And so for something. Uh, I eventually stole some money and did a runner. Got my last wages, stole some money, did a runner down to Weymouth. Stayed there for a couple of weeks and enjoyed it. Got drunk. Uh, I thought it was great while I had a bit of money in my pocket, but after a couple of weeks, as I say, I was getting skint. And again, I handed myself in at the police. And they said, fuck off, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then... I hitchhiked back to Scotland and handed myself into the police again.
0: I wish, wish I mean, that's. You must have had a strong moral compass, because that's you know two, three times you're handing yourself into the police.
1: Aye, well. I think that that probably comes from which you've been brought up well, and the fear of actually being caught rather than handing myself in and admitting to it. Sort of became a pattern throughout my life as well. Uh, the pe- the person that I stole the money off hadn't even reported it.
0: But well, I was wondering, yeah, he knew I'd stole the money?
1: Yeah, yeah. He was a mate, and he hadn't even reported it. If I'd gone, pay, gone to him, I probably would have got a punch in the face. That would have been very likely, but he would have said, "Pay me it back." Yeah, and it would have been all over and done with. I didn't do that. Hand myself into the police he comes down to the police station and said, I didn't even report this. But because I had handed kind of yeah. myself in, it, it had to be dealt with by the police. So they stuck me in, a, in prison for two weeks. Oh, I was on remand in Sochton. It's the only time I've ever done in my life. But it was only because I said I was homeless. Like, I wouldn't admit where, like, I could go back to my parents sure. or anything like that. And it was only the, like, social workers and people like that went to my parents and said, has he got a place to go to if he gets let out, yeah. so when it came to the court date, I ended up getting probation. I would never have went to pr- prison for that, like it was 150 quid, even at that time that wasn't a great deal of money. Yeah. And because it was from a friend, it probably wouldn't even have been through a court case if I'd done it all right. Yeah. But it was probably a good thing that I went to prison. <laughs> I know that sounds strange and put in probation. Because that led me to when I once I was back home, I hated it at home. So I went off and got a job up in the highlands in a hotel. And I was six months away from the family, completely new people. I could hide who had been, basically. Reinvent myself. Reinvent myself completely. Yeah. And that's what I did. Uh again, working in a hotel, plenty of drinking going on. Within two weeks, I was sitting in the staff room and these two girls walked through the door, new members of staff, Celine and Catherine, one dark hair, one blonde, and I said, I'm marrying the wee blonde to my mate. And within six months, she was pregnant, we were married, and we'd moved to Airdrie. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) No suddenness about that, is it? It's just what everybody does to get married, isn't it? Where and was she from? She was from Airdrie.
0: So uh, right, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, to uh,
1: so, we end up back in Airdrie. I remember the first time I went to Airdrie when uh, I had this massive teddy bear under my arm and I arrived at our door. Bear in mind that she was pregnant and our parents weren't very happy about this. Uh, they were a bit happier because we were going to get married but they didn't like me because I was a Protestant, they were Catholics. Uh, when I got to the door with this big teddy bear, the father had my father-in-law to become, he was going to kill me, right? But he saw me with this big teddy bear and just shook his head and said, come in. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So that was the first meeting we made with this big bloody teddy bear under the man. Uh, I stayed with her parents for a couple of weeks, but me and Pat did eventually end up fighting. That was her father. Yeah, like Physically? physically, Yeah, physically fine We went out and got drunk several times And he was a proper alcoholic And he gave me some good training for my future career Uh, But I went and stayed with Catherine's auntie at that point And as I say, we ended up married Like two weeks after my 21st birthday She was 17, I was 21 And we were married very soon after Obviously, first child came along Martin and that controlled my drinking for 18 years. didn't it control my gambling. My gambling was alright most of the time and terrible twice a year. And when it got terrible, I'd do a runner. Right. Again. I remember the first time, it was like six weeks after Martin was born probably. I won some, At that point, I actually won some money and did a runner. Decided, this isn't for me, this married life. And went off. Again, slept rough down in Weymouth. Uh, didn't care. Just wanted to be away for my life as it was then. Went back, she took me back and this was to happen probably on a yearly basis, That like long periods, of, like a couple of weeks away at a time sort of thing. And as I say that, when I was at home, my drinking was being controlled by my wife. I'd still drink at the weekends. She used to hate it when I drank whiskey because then I'd get really drunk. Never, ever got violent, but I did get angry and frustrated. All all the things that you involve with alcohol. Uh, I was a good father when I was there. I was obviously a shit father when I did a runner. Uh, After 18 years, we did last that long, unbelievably, uh, purely through Catherine taking me back and me... Agreeing to do everything that she said I, that I had to do. And that's not a marriage. That's just craziness, basically. Surviving. But I didn't know what to do to yeah. get out of that or be in it. Eventually, she didn't take me back. And that's when my drinking took off to a new level. Uh, that I didn't think I was an alcoholic before that. I was drinking alcoholically at the weekends, but I wasn't drinking every day.
0: Were you working at that time? Did you be holding down a job? Uh,
1: Throughout my marriage, I was working most of the time, uh, quite often doing delivery jobs for Chinese and Indians and places like that, because you could make quite a bit of money on the side, basically, and claiming benefits as well. Other times, I, I was working in factories and stuff like that. But getting a job back then was quite easy, and like yeah, I did have job. Yeah. I did have jobs most of the time, of one way or the other, either delivery jobs or proper jobs. I Ended up the end of the marriage, I was working for my brother-in-law in a place in Larkhall, made blinds, and it was a good job. Was earning a fair bit of money, and my wife, had, she would do her nursing training, so it fitted perfectly. I, you know. We'd be in the house at different times for the kids because at that time we had five kids and they were aged, at the end of the marriage they were aged sort of sixteen down to eight. And when I did my final runner, uh, it was longer than the previous occasions. Uh, the only reason I went back home was because I'd left my ID up there and when I ran out of money I needed my ID. and. Catherine said, no, this is over this time, right, you know, so I ended up in homeless units and all that and just drank all the, all the time, you know, I, I did get a job at one point and it was in a, like a Ald's Bakery in Hamilton and I was earning half decent money and just spending it all on drink. Gambling had taken a back seat because I, I wanted money for a drink so that I could have a drink every night, every day, mm-hmm. you know. And after a couple of years of this, I was off my head basically. Uh, didn't know where I was going. I'd been in like homeless places, ended up staying in a flat with a guy that I hardly knew. He was heavy on the drugs, I was heavy on the drink. It's not a great combination. And I eventually did a runner for there as well and went back down south. And then I was in London at this time and again for a week or so I was living on the streets but quite happy because I had a bit of money in my pocket. I could mm-hmm, get my drink mm-hmm. so it didn't really bother me. And then it got frightening again because I was running out of money. I got mugged, lost a lot. The last of my cash sort of thing. I had one can left. <laughs> so... For some strange reason, at that point, I decided to go to an EA I mean. Because I think something in my head said, it's the drink that's causing this. You need to do something about it.
0: Well, I was going to say, but the, the, obviously the, the sort of years of drinking, mm. did you at any time know why you were drinking to excess? Or uh, did you think about it? What, what, at was the back this? of
1: my mind, there was a nagging feeling that, something wasn't right mental health wise and my childhood stuff that i hadn't talked about to anybody but actually the, the bit of this my story i'm coming to is when i was in london went to this AA meeting and one like they were all wonderful people like they asked me who i was and what my situation was and all that and was was lucky there was this irish couple there both alcoholics uh obviously getting amy yeah, yeah and they got me a place in a hostel. It was a dive at that time, because it was a priest that used to, uh, that ran it. And basically he'd take people off the streets and try and get them sober. And back in those days, you could do that anywhere. Like it yeah. was like an old house yep. that had been basically renovated by the guys that lived there.
0: Just people with a good, a good heart. good uh, like yeah.
1: Alcoholics who were yeah. trying to get sober were fixing up the house and all that as well while they were there. And I went in there. And for the first time in my life, I told my whole life story, a bit like I'm doing now, to a woman. No idea who this woman was. Turns out she was a nun. And so I told my whole life sta- story to a nun, and just to make it a bit di- more different. Turned out she was an alcoholic nun. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I met her. I don't know for, why I'm laughing. Now, <laughs> you know,
0: but it's uh, yeah. So I met her
1: several times after that at meetings and became yeah. quite good friends. Uh, and going through Kairos, this place was called, it was great, you know, there was a comradeship. I'm still friends with three people from back then. I haven't had friends for the pubs back then, you know, that I'm still in contact with. Well, I've got three people that yeah. went through that way that I'm still in good contact with. Uh, I was in there sort of, it's a similar sort of place to The Arch, There's a rehab part of it as well though, so I went through Mm -hmm. the rehab bit, then got moved on to my own flat, and my life was good. I'd stopped drinking for just over two years, and then me and one of the friends I was mentioning there, who's still a very good friend, decided that we weren't alcoholics and we could go for a drink. We did that. Uh, I ended up drinking for the next six months. She ended up in hospital within about a week through the effects of drink. And that's when we separated. She went back into treatment and went off down to Plymouth. I'd carried on drinking, and I should mention I was a milkman at this time as well, but I carried on drinking and smoking dope while during my shifts, lay the effects of coming off the drink and carried on like that for about six months and then got back into treatment in another place. And it'd be really boring if I went through the next sort of 10 years, cause I did the same thing over and over and over again.
0: So it was this down in England?
1: It was all all in London. Uh, it finally ended up after, I think it was four stints in rehab and move, getting through the rehab, going onto a move on house and then moving into my own place. I'd go and get drunk. I'd stop playing, paying the bills, yeah. and end
0: so up so at the time, I mean, you know, all this sort of period that you're talking about, you know, that that ten year period, I guess, were there people there supporting you, helping you, saying, "Look, this is what you need to do. This is where you, where you should be." You know, what was it like back then? I had,
1: I had lots of fantastic help, but the problem with these things is. Well problem for me with these things is, is when I got to the stage where I was moving into my own flat, I thought I'd done it. And then something would hit me. It could be anything. You know, it could be a death, it could be struggling in a job somewhere or
0: Dundee United I'd, losing. Dundee united Scott, losing. Final. Yeah, yeah. That's
1: a perfectly good reason to go back on the drink. Yeah. yeah. That and that's I always had great reasons for going back on the drink. None of them real, but legitimately at, t- at the time yeah, yeah. Yeah. they felt like g- real good yeah. reasons for going back on the drink. I remember, like at one stage at the end of my first period in my own place, it was nine eleven that happened, and I said I can't stay in London anymore because obviously it was going to get bombed very shortly, and I went back up to gl- to Glenrothes and Dunfermline, eh, sorry, and stayed with my brother for six months. Before coming back to London, hmm. getting, you know, I'd been drunk all that six mm-hmm, months yeah. and I came back to London to get back into treatment. But it was just, it was over and over again for like about 10 years. But the final one was in Bromley, like I had a flat in Bromley and I was doing really well. And again, for like a couple of
0: years sober. And working, you employed,
1: Well, I was working for Thames Reach, who are basically one of London's equivalents to the Arch. They do outreach work, they have hostels and stuff like that and the outreach work with the homeless was, I loved it, like, you know, you could go out, you were actually going out and helping people, finding people that were really homeless, uh, I say really homeless because I find that a lot of the people you think are homeless it's, are begging on the street and stuff like that, yet some of them are but some of them aren't some of them are sofa surfing some of them have got perfectly good flats and they just go out begging the real homeless that I'm talking about are the people that hide away all the time
0: mm,
1: yeah. the people who don't yeah. want to be seen by friends family Yeah. the public in general they just don't want they don't want sure. that we, we'd go around the back of shops and stuff like that and we'd find people hiding away sleeping and we'd try to get them into hostels and it was often a very good difficult job because these homeless were so set in their ways that they didn't want help. Yeah. They wanted to stay because it was what they were used to. They felt you know, a
0: bit, uh, uh, it, as ironic as it may sound, but they felt safe and secure yes, in they, their they, own they'd, they'd found little a, place, world. To, a place to sleep yeah. yep.
1: that was away from the rest of the world and they could hide there and they could get by. Yeah. Either by sometimes begging, there were a few like that, but most of them would go to, like, there was a job centre in London that you could go to and get a job for the day. So you go and do a job for the day, like you do eight hours in a kitchen or something, you could get a wee bit of cash and get you your drink for that night and you'd go back to your place. And
0: when you touched on it yourself earlier, when you you, you had been to Weymouth and, and other places, you said you, you, you were quite happy as long as you had your your drink for the day or some cash Aye. as soon as the cash ran out or you didn't have any drink with you that's when fear yeah. kicked in
1: yeah definitely yeah it's the fear of what's going to happen to me next it's not knowing what's going to happen to you next that's the, the so if fear. you had
0: if you had two cans then one in each pocket and oh. the fear wasn't there Everything okay, didn't it? Didn't happen, it uh, didn't matter what happens tomorrow. I'll I, di- di- I didn't care as long as, yeah.
1: I, as long as I had a couple of cans or right. like the money to buy a couple of cans. Yeah. I, I honestly, I really didn't care. It was, eh, uh, trying to think of a way to put it. It was, I, you thought you were sorted as long as you had your stuff for the following day. Or you had a way to get your stuff the following day. Mm-hmm. No, you mm-hmm. knew you could like go to that job centre and get a job for eight hours. Yeah. You could put yourself through eight hours working hungover in a kitchen if you knew you were getting a bit of money at the end of it that would keep you going for maybe another two, or three days. Yeah. And that's what you would do. It was just life. and that felt normal. You no, know, that felt like, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I'm getting by. You know, I can do this.
0: So you eventually arrived in Glasgow?
1: I did. That's when I came back from Bromley. Why I chose Glasgow to go to, I, I, I did a tour of Britain before that, because I'd, I'd inherited £7,000, that's why I went back on the drink. And I think it took me about six months to get rid of the 7000 quid or most of it at least. Didn't bother paying any rent, so I was going to be evicted. But before I got evicted, I walked out. Uh, the last three months I was drinking was every day from 11 o'clock in the morning I always went from a McDonald's burger first, and then a drink all day, in the same pubs, like a pub for during the daytime, and then I'd arrive sober in a pub for the night time. Now, I say arrived sober. I thought I would look sober and all right, but obviously, if you've been drinking all day, you're not sober and all right. (coughs) So, eventually, I went on a tour of Britain, like Norwich, Cardiff, Brighton and then up to Edinburgh, and then across to Glasgow.
0: Had you been to Glasgow before?
1: No very much. Uh, I had a connection with Glasgow because, I've got family that stayed in Glasgow. Right. My son yeah. was living in Easter House at the time. Because I'd, I'd lived in Airdrie for 18 years. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, I knew Glasgow quite well. And when I came to Glasgow, I didn't know what to do next can't even really remember what I actually did to get. I think I went to an AA meeting as well, again and someone took me to the Hamish Allen Centre for an uh, AA meeting because I wouldn't have found it by myself, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. And I think they got me in touch with an alcohol worker as well who never ever called me. Like I went in for an interview with him and never ever called me back. But I ended up, I went into a hostel in Easterhouse and the woman that I'd met in the housing office turned out to be someone who used to work as a... I'm not sure, I don't know what the word is for it. Like, she'd be in touch with Arch all the time.
0: She was... Uh, the the person I think you referred to, was it the Hamish Allen? It was, a, yeah. And she called. Uh, I spoke to her and... Uh, she said, she's no longer working there. Aye. And Hamish Allen's closed now anyway. Yeah. But she, she said, I have a chap here who, unfortunately, doesn't meet the criteria, but I think he would be ideal for your place. Uh-huh. And I'm going to try and make this happen.
1: You know that, that's the first time I've ever heard that part of the story.
0: Yeah, <laughs> she did that. And uh, we thought, okay, all right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's from out with Glasgow. Aye. But I think he would thrive in your place. Aye. So we thought, okay. So you were yeah, came along th- th-
1: three months in a f- in a hostel first and bear in mind that this hostel in Easter House was a drinking hostel. Aye. everyone was drunk all the time, and I stayed sober through that. A lot of help that I got at wow. Easter House from a little group that wasn't AA, but it was just guys wanting to stop drinking, and they were a big big help to me. They actually eventually came at the arch and played pool against us. That's right, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And
1: so that I'm still in touch with a couple of the guys for that as well. Should and, do that again. You know, really nice people
0: we well accept well, all comers. <laughs> that place
1: is actually shut down now due to
0: the cuts, oh,
1: unfortunately. So I ended up at the Arch. okay yeah, but she, she
0: was great. She was great. Uh, I'll, I'll remind you of her name after this. But she, she was she was uh, a credit to the organisation she worked yes,
1: for. Yes. Basically, she changed my life. Yeah. She was the start of the, a big change in my life. Anyway, because I came for an interview with the Arch, and they said they'd take me in but as I say, I still had to stay up there for about three months. As soon as I got a chance to get into the Arch, I came to the Arch, and this was a new type of place for me. It was run by, although I'd been in a place that was run by a Catholic priest, religion had nothing to do with that. The Arch had a bit more, like because it was run by the Scottish Christian Alliance, there was Bible study groups at that time at night and stuff like that, and I thought, this is different, but... it's no bad, <laughs> you know. They didn't. No one here ever pushed religion or Christ or anything on me. But I could see the people here were true to their word. They were living lives that went along with their concept of religion and Christ. It's not the same as mine, but that makes no difference to me nowadays. Mm-hmm. I used to it used to be AA means they always say God and stuff like that, and I used to hate it. But now. Years later, I've got my own concept of God. Yeah. And it's my concept. It's nobody else's, but it's there. There's something I pray to it every morning.
0: Does you wear a tangerine top? He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't funnily enough. I'll
1: save that for the football. Uh, so I, mean, I, mean, I came to the Arch, and it was great here. We had a great bunch of guys here at that time. I'm sure you'll remember, Brian. Yeah. You know, Yeah. it was very strong. There was people going, hey, all the time. Uh, he used to take me at meetings, stuff like that. And... I remember me and John used to play pool like constantly against each other. You know, it was always great fun. You know, we'd watch movies in here. We'd basically we had a life that wasn't to do with drinking, and it wasn't it wasn't completely to do with stopping drinking either, which is I found later on that that is maybe more important.
0: Right, that's interesting. Because if
1: your whole life is made up of not drinking what's the only thing that's going to happen at the end of it? Mm. You're going to drink.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because you've not put anything else in, in place. With it, after about nine months in, in the arch, rather than move on, George, who was there at, here at the time, offered me the job as night shift warden, which I accepted. And ever since then, my life has got better although two years ago I went through a very down spell, my father had died Uh, lots of other things weren't going quite right in my life Uh, it was a case of being stopped drinking and not really doing much else about it I got a lot of help at the time from the staff in here, from counsellor I eventually saw and got help from the doctor as well and that's an important part of my story I think accepting help from the doctor I went on uh, citeroline which is an antidepressant and anxiety and that really has changed a lot of stuff I'm still on that now but it's just a routine every day I take it and I know what I'm taking it for because I don't want to be back where I was a couple of years ago Mm -hmm. because for the first time two years ago I'd got to a stage where I didn't want to carry on the way I was going but I didn't want to drink either I really didn't want to drink
0: And I suppose that would be the first time that you had made that decision?
1: Yeah it was hard but I, the thing, I think the big difference was the Arch were still supporting me because I was living in a scatter flat I had someone I could turn to whereas when it had been, all the previous occasions had been out in a flat on my own and I didn't know who to turn to and I think if anything like that, e- even if I was to move on eventually and stay in my own flat now, I have things in place now where I know I can go there and get help. Sure. I can always come back to the arch for help. You know, yep. I can go to the counselling place that I went to for help. And over the last couple of years, my life has changed out of all... Ah, I can't get into the word. Recognition. All recognition to what it was two years ago. Yeah. Uh, My flat alone, it used to be this empty space with a few bits of furniture in it. It's now got bookcases full of books and DVDs and CDs and got ornaments all over the house. I've got a thimble collection.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about it the other week. Your flat's now no longer a house, it's a home. Exactly,
1: that is exactly it.
0: Uh,
1: as, As I said earlier, I'm still in contact with a very good friend. Claire and I go and visit her in Plymouth on a regular basis probably once every six weeks I go to Plymouth now now, and she comes up for the summer and all that because she's a a teacher and she's in Berwick for the whole summer and like all the other school holidays so I've now got a great life Uh, I travel around doing stuff and it's fun (laughs) that's lovely here
0: that's good so Dundee United Let's finish with that. Uh-huh. What was your highlights? Did, uh, did you ever visit? Yeah, go you know, come back up to visit and I, go and watch them The and...
1: ultimate highlight we done to United was I've only made the one foreign trip and that was to Monaco. It was a great time to make a foreign trip because we beat Monaco five two away from home. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It was like unbelievable. It was like
0: during the it was mid eighties, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. yeah, I I was a bit of a Dundee United fan uh, at the time, following them. I really, I loved watching them beating Barcelona. And, yeah, well, we're, you know,
1: we're still the only team with a hundred percent record yeah. against Barcelona, <laughs> and it, we probably always will be because no one else will ever get ever get a hundred percent record against Barcelona.
0: I've got memories that you know. Uh, Paul Sturrock with the socks at his ankles. Yeah, uh, well I could away. I could pretty much name the whole team. Yeah, you don't have to do that.
1: <laughs> but mainly Hamish and Golds. We even named our cat after Hamish.
0: Probably. <laughs> yeah. Gordon, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, the memories and and the conversation. Thanks for your time. It's okay. Was that, I think you'll agree, Gordon, what a lovely man he is. It's been great to be part of the journey that Gordon has taken over the last eight years or so, and I remember so well as though it was only last week, the conversation I had with the person uh, Gordon referred to at the Homeless Casework team. That lady in question was brilliant, and she went above and beyond the college of duty many times. She could see the goodness in people, and in Gordon uh, she just laid the foundation for, a, a, as Gordon said, a great life. And that's a skill social care workers and professionals need to develop. That's a skill we've developed here at The Arch. I enjoyed a football talk. Since recording, this, uh, unfortunately for Gordon, his beloved Dundee United failed in their attempt to return to the Premier League and we'll spend next season battling once more for promotion and I, for one, hope they succeed. I hope you enjoyed this episode, I really did. If you'd like to help us with the work we do here, then please get in touch. Help secure funding for a year so that we can help homeless men like Gordon break the cycle of homelessness and addiction and work towards sustaining a tenancy and a roof over their heads, and find purpose in their life. You know where we are. www.scottishchristianalliance.org.uk You can leave a, a message there. Uh, you can also listen to the podcast there. Or you can email us at info at You can also get us on Twitter, Arch the. And we're also now on Instagram, scarch36, 3 Please consider a one-off donation if you can, or if you are really inspired, why not make a a monthly giving, a commitment to us to help uh, men that we work with. Or if you want to sponsor the show, if you're a business, an organisation, then uh, we are open to sponsorship. We'll gladly take your money and call the show anything you want within reason. All are welcome. To give you some idea of the cost to look after and support homeless men here in Glasgow, it equates to £250 per week per person to deliver someone from homelessness and into their own home. It doesn't sound much. It works out about £13,500 per year, per person. And I know there's people out there who that's a drop in the ocean too. For others like myself, it's far more. Whatever you can give, it will be gratefully received and put to very good use. Thanks for listening. I've been Brian Reid. Hope you enjoyed the show. And until next time, stay safe. And be blessed.